Sunday morning, we're studying uh, the, uh, 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 Genesis in a series entitled Gleanings from the Books, uh, Book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now, and they'll get a Bible into your hand uh, this morning. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Uh, and then uh, just a reminder, on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently just began, we'll start chapter 2 this evening, uh, just begun the book of Daniel. And if you're a Christian, a new Christian, or a Christian been around for a while, and you've never studied the book of Daniel or understanding it, um, you, you walk with a limp a little bit spiritually. It's a very, very important book for every Christian to have uh, working inside of them in terms of processing life, walking with the Lord, understanding God. We'll be studying that tonight at 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. And then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each of animals that are unclean, a male and female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And so Noah with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that were unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. And the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. And on that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, uh, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. And so those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed, greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle, beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. And all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. 
And so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this account in human history. We thank you not only that it is in your book, but that it is in your book in order that it might teach us something today in this age and today in our own personal relationship with you. We pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, and we pray that uh, this sermon and the teaching from this passage would not be in word only, but in the demonstration of your Spirit, that we would hear your voice and we would hear your heart in all of it. And we pray specifically for each man and woman that stands before you right now that does not yet know you, hasn't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and thus entered into the kingdom of God and entered into your family and the safety that is found solely there. We pray that today something would make sense to them of their need for salvation and of your, the provision of your salvation to them, and they would come to be your follower today. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that in Noah's day, as we have studied in chapter 6, that the world had become very, very wicked. It had also become a, an extraordinarily uh, violent place. It was a world in which men, both in their thinking and their doing, was given over to uh, the exploration and the experience of evil uh, continually and uh, that it was a time uh, in which the uh, mankind and the human population was also heavily demonized, uh, greatly uh, influenced by the demonic realm, far more than they were being influenced uh, by God. And mankind had, by this time, moved very, very far away from God, very, very far away from God's intent uh, for man and what God has created us to be. But probably more, and certainly more alarming than the moral condition, uh, the physical condition, the spiritual condition of the world at that time, as I've just spoken uh, about in terms of the world, is it from the perspective of, of heaven. Uh, all of this willful, deliberate sin on the part of, of mankind and the human condition by uh, in large was putting the very future of humanity uh, into uh, jeopardy. And worse than putting it in jeopardy, they were putting into jeopardy God's promise to provide the world and mankind with a salvation and with a Savior, uh, as he had promised in Genesis chapter 3, 15, through the seed of a woman. At the time of the flood, there were only eight people who still had any concern for God, any concern for righteousness, any concern for God's plan for the world. The entire rest of the population uh, could not have cared less about uh, any uh, of that 
uh, at all. And thus, it was a world that was ripe for God's judgment. Now, Noah, we're told, he lived uh, righteously before the Lord. Uh, Even in this extraordinarily evil context, it's possible to live for God. And uh, he did so, he and his, his family. And as a result of that, God told him, that he was going to judge the earth and that he was going to destroy all flesh on the earth by way of a flood. And then God commanded Noah to build an ark complete with an adequate food supply both for his family and for the animals that would uh, come upon uh, aboard of the ark in order to, uh, that the ark and the food supply would be uh, able to uh, keep in, uh, his family and Noah, the animal kingdom, uh, to be saved during this flood that, would, that God was going to bring uh, as a judgment upon the earth. And thankfully, this was a command to build that ark and everything associated with it. Noah obeyed that command. And then as we read here this morning in chapter 7, upon completion of the ark, complete with its food supply, God called upon uh, Noah and his family then to come into the completed ark itself, as we're told in verse 1. And then supernaturally, as we see in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 20, but also in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 9, God then uh, brought the animals to enter the ark as well. And he brings them two by two. He brings them from all over, and they enter into the ark. Now, uh, skeptics of the Bible's account uh, concerning the flood, they often mock the idea of uh, picturing within their minds the idea of Noah running all over the face of the earth trying to catch every kind of animal and, and lizard and reptile and bird and insect and and then uh, kind of herd them uh, under his own effort into the ark. But a a more careful reading uh, of the passage reveals that God brought them uh, to Noah. And the fact that God was able to uh, manage animals in this way, it wasn't unprecedented in human history, even that early in human history. You might remember as early as in uh, Genesis chapter 2, that God brought the animals to Adam in order that he might name this. This was nothing that was difficult or unprecedented for uh, God to do. Now, if you put yourself in the place of one of the wicked that were living in the earth at this particular time, you watched Noah building this ark out in the middle of a plain of some kind, far away from any body of water, and that would seem uh, weird to you, but it would certainly get your attention. You have to come to some conclusion about what he's doing out there. You have to either accept that what he's saying is true or that it's utter nonsense and he's a madman. But even if you concluded that he was a madman, on this uh, period of time where all of these animals from all, all over the place begin to line up in twos and uh, form a line and make their way into the ark, you would think that the hardest of, uh, of uh, any person's heart would look at that and say, uh, no, no man is pulling that off. Uh, this is an extraordinary thing that is happening uh, before our eyes and, and an indication that God is moving forward himself with his plan uh, to destroy the earth that Noah has been telling us uh, about. And yet, as the, as the world watched all of this going on, not a single person uh, turned at all and, and gave Noah's message a second thought. Additionally, I think that 
It's easy for someone to look at this long line of animals or the idea of these animals now being uh, gathered upon an ark, an ark that they're going to be on for uh, fully a year before they touch ground again and wonder why in the world uh, didn't these animals eat one another, uh, whether in line or ultimately on the ark. Wasn't, why didn't the ark become like a Halloween bloodbath uh, of, of animals eating animals within uh, within the ark. Well, it, it appears from the biblical account that the animal kingdom was not carnivorous uh, until after the flood and only after the flood. The condition of the world prior to the flood and uh, the condition of the world after the flood are two entirely different things. And the Bible indicates that they become, as, as you go into chapter 8, that they became carnivorous only uh, after the flood. And again, this isn't an unprecedented uh, kind of condition for uh, the animal kingdom. You might be aware related to the Bible that in what is called the kingdom age or the thousand year reign of Christ, that once again the animal kingdom will return to uh, its pre-flood condition, its garden of Eden condition, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where the child will be able to to uh, play with the adder or play with the cobra, snake, and not be uh, in any danger to the snake, nor the snake in a, a, a danger uh, to, to them uh, at all. Now, with, with, then with Adam and his family, all the animals, they, all of them safely on the ark were told at the end of verse 16 that God then shut them in. It'd be seven more days before the flood would actually uh, start in earnest. So they've got kind of seven days to settle into uh, this ark. And I can imagine what the, the jokes might have been concerning Noah the entire time he was building the ark. And certainly now, I mean, people looking at that, they've watched him now enter with his family into this ark with all of these animals. I don't care how much you like animals. That's got to be a rough environment. And so they look at Noah and his family and say, well, we thought he was crazy. Now he's an absolute nutcase. He's he sealed himself in now with all of these, these animals as, as, uh, as, as well. And then we're told in verses 11 and 12 that God then poured out his judgment in the form of a flood upon the entire earth. And he did it by means of rain that flowed for 40 days and for 40 nights. And additionally, through the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep is how Moses puts it in in the record. And so I think as that rain begins to fall prior to the flood, as we'll see in a moment, uh, prior to the flood, there was no rain on the earth. It was a completely different atmospheric condition. And uh, then, then, and all of a sudden the rain begins to fall. At, uh, the, uh, Noah and his family are in the ark. The animals in the, are in the ark. They've never known rain to occur, to be a reality in human history. Only Noah has been crazy enough to talk about it as something that God would use as a judgment. And then it begins to fall. And of course, in an instant, as you might imagine, all of the laughing and all the mocking uh, ceases. Now, this is another source of ridicule on the part of the skeptics uh, concerning the Bible's account of the flood. And they contend that uh, the current atmospheric uh, canopy of the earth, our current atmosphere, uh, is incapable of providing enough rain to flood uh, the entire earth. And uh, they're absolutely correct about that. 
and uh, that the, our current atmospheric canopy can only really uh, supply enough rain to maybe flood a small area of the, uh, of the earth uh, at, at any given time, but certainly not the entire world. But uh, again, it's important to read uh, this uh, account carefully. Uh, prior to the flood, as I mentioned, there appears to have been a far different and a far denser atmospheric canopy over the entire earth. And this canopy provided a, a uniform uh, temperature, a uniform climate for the entire uh, world. All of this is described in uh, Genesis chapter 2, as we saw it, uh, where we're told in that uh, period that the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth, and, uh, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And so here you have this, uh, an entirely different canopy uh, capable of an entirely different amount of, of, of waterfall. But additionally, we're told in verse 11, that the fountains of the great deep, these underwater, great underwater sources of uh, uh, water sources of the earth, they also began now to burst forth to, to provide an additional water source uh, for the flood. And so you have these like these gigantic fire hydrants that are coming up as the earth is busting open and this water is beginning to flow in like a, uh, a house that is flooding. The earth is flooding these great amounts of water uh, immediately under the earth's surface and uh, the surface of the earth, it begins to buckle, it begins to break and, and it releases all of these great reservoirs uh, of, of water. And that's why when they, they study these things today and they look at these geological columns they see entire sections of the geological columns where the oldest should be on the bottom and going up to the youngest in terms of the layers that are laid down, and they're completely flipped on their head. The indication that some upheaval have happened in the earth that uh, turned uh, vast portions of, of uh, sections of the world uh, upside down, and, and, uh, and this is uh, the explanation for that. But, but in terms of producing a flood of this magnitude, uh, beyond all of this, the flood is clearly a miracle of God. Uh, the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, that is clearly a, a miracle uh, of God, especially in a world that had never experienced rain before at, at all. In other words, God just comes along. He had made the promise that he was going to judge the world by way of flood, and he comes along and he adds whatever miracle is necessary to accomplish the judgment that he has, has promised. He's going to do exactly the same thing during the tribulation period uh, in which those seals and the trumpet and the bold judgments go forth. Uh, all of them will have an aspect of them that will be, uh, have a, a natural aspect to them, but then God will add to that natural aspect of them uh, the, the, the supernatural uh, of it so that all of those uh, judgments become supernatural events and not purely physical uh, events. You notice in verse 20 to 22 that the waters prevailed, uh, were told upon the earth until all the flesh on the earth uh, died. Uh, the judgment is, uh, symbolically, it's a very, very uh, just judgment. It's a very uh, uh, pure in the sense that the world had become uh, so wicked and, and had become so dirty with, with the wickedness that here 
uh, really a, a judgment by water, just perfect in its symbolism, just to wash away the sheer wickedness that filled the earth at the time. We're told that in verse 24 that the waters prevailed on the earth for uh, 150 days. It would be a full year before the waters would recede sufficiently to allow Adam and Eve, I mean not Adam and Eve, but Noah and his um, his family and then the animals to come out of the ark and onto uh, dry ground. All of that is described in, in chapter 8. And, and up against any kind of thought of uh, you know, putting Noah or the flood into some category of a, a fable or that it's just an allegory. It's just a story that God is telling. It's not a true event in human history. Number one, you, have, you put it up against the, the, the narrative that is given to us. I mean, for instance, in, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, uh, on that day, it hardly reads like an allegory. Uh, it reads like history. It hardly re reads like a fable. It reads like history because it is history. And uh, that is the point that, that God is, is wanting to, to make here. And so many, many people look at it. They try to say, well, it's an allegory. It's a fable of some kind. But even the Holy Spirit steps in and the rest of the Bible and puts a stop to uh, anyone who has the fear of God of ever coming to that kind of a conclusion about any of this. Because the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, very authoritatively, he defends the account as it's supplied to us here in, in Genesis chapters uh, 6 through uh, 8. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declared, Isaiah 54, 9, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Twice the, the prophet Ezekiel mentions Noah. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel 14, 14, even if these uh, three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, God declared, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. You go into the New Testament and uh, Noah is mentioned in uh, Luke's gospel, in the official genealogy uh, of Jesus, and then he's listed once again in the great hall of faith in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Peter mentions him uh, twice, once each in his uh, two epistles in the New Testament, and then most significantly of all, Jesus uh, himself spoke of Noah and the judgment of, of his day. Now, from chapter 7 here this morning, I just want to notice two things uh, uh, briefly from, from this passage as a, a considerations for us this morning. And the first thing is uh, noticing the judgment of God that is, is made clear here, unflinchingly, uh, unapologetically, is it, it lies uh, right on the surface uh, of the account. Uh, and then second, the salvation of God that is, is here in the form of the ark. One of the interesting things to me, at least, about the account of the flood is really how uh, lean the account is, uh, how uh, spare uh, the account is. There, there are no, as you might think today, I mean, there are no graphic descriptions of people drowning. 
there are, there's no mention of their panic, no mention of their horror, no mention of their uh, desperation, no mention of them pounding upon the door uh, of the ark in an attempt to get into the ark belatedly, uh, though doubtless all of those things happened. And instead, all of it is, is stated so simply, uh, verse 21, all flesh died. And, uh, and then in verse 23, he destroyed. And I think that one of the reasons that the Lord makes the, the account so lean and so spare is in order for the two great lessons that he wants us to see from this account would not be encumbered or cluttered up or lost. These things wouldn't get lost by uh, these other kind of, uh, of details. And so I, I think it's in order to direct our focus to these two great things, these two great enduring truths surrounding the flood, the wrath and the judgment of God and the salvation that God always provides mankind uh, from his wrath and his judgment. Now, the wrath uh, uh, of God is, is that which is provoked in God toward the practice of evil or toward the practice of wickedness or unrighteousness. When God sees that, it provokes a uh, wrath in him. It produ produces a righteous anger in him. And as, popular, as unpopular as it may be to some people today, and uh, the wrath of God is very uh, unpopular uh, today, certainly in our culture. It is important to remember as Christians that the wrath of God is one of God's excellencies. It is one of his perfections. And without it, he would not be and could not be a truly righteous God. I, I can't speak for anyone else, but the wrath of God is a comfort to me. It is an absolute reassurance uh, uh, in a sense to me because I can see the capacity within myself and I can see the potential uh, of mankind as a whole to lose the capacity of outrage over evil or over wickedness or unrighteousness. And I am comforted that a needed righteous indignation towards sin exists in God and that it is eternal and inextinguishable in Him. Lest we would one day be swallowed up by our wickedness and by all of our false definitions of love that we devise today to protect our wickedness. The thought of the possibility that the universe that we live in is one in which a righteous anger toward wickedness uh, rests solely in man or that it could cease to exist based upon our capacity to rationalize and accommodate wickedness, that is far scarier to me than the reality that there is a God who possesses a righteous anger toward wickedness. It is a relief to me 
to know that if righteous anger were to cease to exist in mankind, that it would not cease to exist then at all, but that it would continue to exist eternally in God. Because without it, you run the risk of righteousness ceasing to be protected by a righteous indignation and righteousness ceasing to exist at all. And I don't think that it takes any imagination at all, certainly not for us that are alive today, if we have any kind of a a knowledge of, of human history or any kind of significant life experience or self-awareness, or any kind of awareness of the world uh, around us, to accept that human history could have and did indeed reach a point in which the very existence of the righteous was put in jeopardy by the wicked, and that it required a judgment of God to keep the wicked from prevailing over the righteous and over righteousness itself, and that it was exactly the righteous and loving thing of God to rise up and judge it. And all of this is going to happen once again Uh, during the Great Tribulation period, and all of this is going to happen in the world again under the Antichrist. And to me, the idea that I don't know about the United States of America of the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when we were something entirely different morally and spiritually than we are today. But I think that living today in the United States of America, and it's certainly true living in much of the rest uh, of the world, But this idea that the world could grow so dark and so dominated by wickedness and that men, whether individual men and women or in terms of being leaders or just the masses themselves, that they could become so dominated by the demonic realm as to become pawns in their hands and that mankind will come to realize that the only hope for man is in the wrath of God against wickedness and that wickedness can become so great in this world that no longer will the righteous wrath of God be an affront to our so-called sensitivities as if we could know more than God, but that the world could become so evil that to a person people will beg God to step in in his righteousness and in his judgment and bring an end uh, to it. And I don't think it requires any kind of faith at all to recognize that such a thing could happen and happen on a worldwide scale and did happen and will happen again one day. There are vast sections of the world that you and I live in where entire countries live under these vile, cruel, uh, despotic uh, dictators and they, have made, they make their nations an absolute uh, hell on earth for everyone in the population uh, that lives there. But the evil is so systemic, it is so corrupt, it is, it is so deeply rooted, it is now so generational that the populations of those nations look at it and say, we will never be able to overturn this. 
uh, the power and the and the uh, of the wicked the, and and what how they've taken control of everything. The only way we will ever be freed from the hellishness of our condition will be an act of God. And you go south of the border. You don't even need to go south of the border. You can go into some of our major cities in the United States. But for example, south of the border, where you have entire regions of Mexico, as an example, we could go around the world, but it, it, where entire regions are completely under the control of drug cartels who will cut off your head a, a, as easy as uh, pet a, a puppy on, on the street. And think of the fear. Think of the misery. Think of, 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 of what you and I who know something of freedom, of what life can be, of what a dream can be, the potential to meet a dream and to, re, and to live under that kind of oppression and that kind of wickedness. And in that condition to look at it and say, we will never be freed from this. Our government will never be able to free us from that. And then to one day wake up and realize the only hope that we have for anything different different here is that if God rises up, shakes himself off, and he judges it, uh, this wickedness with a righteous anger. This is the portion of many people in, in all uh, of the world. Now, the righteous wrath of God is not an affront to me, not at all. It is a comfort. But then we notice, second, that uh, the ark, having said all of that, uh, it, it, it's in turning our attention to the ark. It's very, very important uh, that we do not, in reading uh, Genesis chapter 7, uh, wrongly conclude uh, that uh, this account is solely an expression of God's wrath. Uh, it is nothing of the sort, because the grace of God, the love of God, it fills the account as well, though it can be entirely missed uh, in, in, a, in a casual reading of the chapter. Notice the expressions of God's grace that fill the chapter. You have God warning Noah uh, to build an ark. Uh, Noah not only builds the ark, but we're told in the New Testament that while he built that ark in obedience to God, that he also called on the people of his generation to repent of their sin, to turn to God, join him in entering into the ark for salvation. He warned them of a coming judgment. This judgment did not come upon the world without the whole world being warned that the judgment was uh, coming. Uh, Peter uh, speaks of of, uh, of, of Noah as being a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. For if God, uh, if God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the uh, flood on the world of the ungodly. The entire world was forewarned, and God in his love and in his grace uh, made sure that it happened. Think about the sheer length of time that was required uh, for Noah to build that ark. Uh, it took him 120 years to build that ark. And, and here is not only Noah building the ark, but he's preaching and calling on people to turn from their sin for 120 years. You talk about giving uh, uh, people a space to repent, room to uh, repent. I mean, nobody 
will ever be able to stand before Christ one day at the great judgment seat of Christ and be able ever complain and and say to Jesus, you only gave us 120 years. I was within a week of uh, listening to Noah and entering into the ark. Listen, if you're not going to listen after 120 years, you're not going to listen. And that's a lot of room that God gave people, driving home the message over and over and over, the message of Noah's life, the message of the ark being built, the message of, of, of uh, uh, repentance. And instead of repenting, every single person except for Noah's family spent the entire 120 years doing what? Repenting not at all but giving themselves completely to an even greater exploration and experience of the wickedness and the evil uh, of, of the day. And I think that all of this is why God commanded Noah to build the ark rather than just instantly producing it uh, upon the plain as a miracle, which he could have done instantly on, uh, on his Uh, on his own. God wanted that ark to be built because he wanted to give people ample opportunity to repent. Because though this records God's judgment, the Bible teaches that God does not uh, enjoy or take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. Uh, He put it probably best in his word in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. God spoke through Ezekiel and said, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, There's nothing about uh, uh, joy, uh, the joy of God or the pleasure of God. You search the entire chapter in a a search for it. it. It isn't there, consistent with how God revealed himself through Ezekiel. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn for, from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And I think that it's one of the reasons that the account is so discreet. Uh, the, the account here, there's the, the, the lack of of the graphicness of the destruction of the wicked in the account. I think it speaks to the fact that God took no joy in all of it, and he he almost uh, puts a a shroud uh, around it here, being as careful as he is in the description. Now, as as a pastor, it's important to me that we do not view the ark forever and always in our Christian lives, that we do not view the ark uh, solely or, or, or even supremely as, as the, the physical means uh, of salvation that God provided to mankind from his judgment in the form of a flood. It is certainly all of that. But it's important to view it as a glorious type and a glorious picture of Jesus Christ as the means of man's salvation from a far greater judgment uh, that awaits every single person who has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, here, here uh, under the, the, the incredible, really inexpressible sobriety of this judgment of Genesis chapter uh, 11, 
It can almost be hard to believe, uh, though we believe it 100%, when Jesus warned of two future judgments that are yet to come into human history that he declared to be far worse than God's judgment upon the earth by way of the flood. And Jesus warned, first of all, of a time of great judgment that will come on the earth during that seven-year period known as the tribulation period, where God pours his wrath out upon a, a, a world that has rejected his Son, and uh, this uh, pouring out of his wrath, the, this tribulation period will follow the rapture of the church. And when Jesus speaks about this, when he declares that, uh, that uh, of this, this greater thing coming, and, and, he, and he declares it in the light of the flood, the sheer destruction uh, of the flood, uh, uh, amazing when Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 21, in his Olivet Discourse, for then there shall be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time nor ever shall be. And that's saying a lot in light of the flood. The second great judgment that is yet to come in human history is the most fearsome of all, and it is the white throne judgment of Christ. When at the end of the age, the Bible teaches every person who has spent their entire lives rejecting God's Son. Re imagine a human being rejecting anything from God much less his son, much less a, a salvation uh, that involved the death, burial, and the resurrection of his son. But this judgment, this white throne judgment of Christ, where every person who has spent their entire life rejecting God's son and God's offer of salvation that's found solely in trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and that one day each and every one of those persons will stand before Jesus Christ himself and will have no excuse, will have no reason that they can speak to him as a justification for their rejection of him as their Savior and as their Lord, and standing before him in an unsaved uh, condition, they will find themselves completely disqualified for heaven and having made themselves qualified only for hell, for eternal uh, judgment. Now, thankfully, there is an ark available uh, to deliver all of us, every single person in this world, from those two great judgments that are yet future in, in human history. There is a, an ark that's available to protect us and to deliver us. The Noah's Ark is one of the greatest pictures of the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ to be found in the entire uh, Bible. And we're certainly free to take it as a picture of Jesus himself and the salvation that is found in him, and free to do it at his invitation. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and, and he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. Everything in the Bible testifies of, of uh, Christ. And you notice concerning uh, the ark as a picture of our salvation that is offered to us by God in Christ. Notice that the design 
and the plans for the ark that they were a divine provision to mankind. Uh, that ark and the dimensions of the ark, the size of it, uh, the, the, the interior of it, the exterior of it, uh, it was not conceived in Noah's mind. It was not conceived in the mind of man, but it originated solely in God. And if God had not provided that means of salvation to Noah, Noah would have perished with everyone else. And God's plan to save mankind through Jesus Christ originated uh, solely in Him, long before uh, mankind had ever sinned. In Genesis, uh, Revelation chapter 13, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus is described as the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. Second, we notice that the ark was a refuge from divine judgment, a refuge from uh, God's wrath. Paul writes in terms of the application of this to the salvation that is found in Christ in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from wrath through him. Third, we notice that by design, in terms of, of the creation of the ark, there was just a, one door into the ark, even as there is only one way uh, to be saved and, uh, and only one way to escape the judgment that our sin deserves, and that is through a faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus declared it of himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And one wonders as you go into John chapter 10 uh, that Jesus might have had this very door of the ark in mind in, in, on, in some respects when he declared, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. And fourth, we notice God's call to Noah to enter into the ark there in the first verse of chapter 7. Even as God calls upon every single human being, every one of us in this room, to be saved, to enter into, uh, not to observe it, not to see it, not to acknowledge it is true, but to enter into Christ, to enter into the salvation that is found in Him. And Jesus declared famously in his public ministry, in the invitation that he gave uh, to the multitude in that day, he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And as God invited Noah and his family into the safety of the ark, he invites every single human being into the safety of his son, spiritually speaking, to now become in Christ, and we become in Christ by being born again. And when we're born again by trusting in Jesus for salvation, we become a part of God's family. We become a part of the kingdom of God, and we are described as being in Christ in the same way that Noah was described as being in the ark. Paul mentions it frequently. He wrote to the church at Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is saved. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He wrote to the church of Ephesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see fifth that there was room on the ark for all that God knew would come. And anyone who will come to Christ can come to Christ. 
and we can come to Christ for salvation without any fear of being turned away. Uh, no matter where we've been in life, no matter what we've done, no matter how great our sins, there is the recognition and the knowledge that there is uh, a place in heaven for us. There is room in heaven for us. Even as Jesus taught in John chapter 6, he declared, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. As a Christian, as a non-Christian, pinch yourself over that great truth. It is so easy because we live in a culture that is so strongly Christian in its heritage that we hear the gospel over and over and over again that we can lose our awe over it. Who would have even guessed that you and I, given our background, given our sin, who and what we are, and every single one of us is infinitely worse than anything we ever think or anything we ever do that we could approach God and that God would never turn us away. It is amazing revelation of the grace and the love and the heart uh, of God for us. You notice further in verse 16 that the door of the ark was shut. It was sealed. In other words, the opportunity to be saved is a finite one. One day the door is shut, and the day that that door is shut is the day that comes to every single person, and that is at the moment of our death. We, we have been closed out from the salvation that has been offered to us. It must be received in this life. There is no further opportunity in, in the life uh, to, to come. And as Noah and his family were sealed into that ark, it certainly uh, speaks of the fact that when we enter into Christ and are saved, we're then sealed uh, by the Holy Spirit, which brings us to the seventh point. The ark was a place of absolute security against the judgment that was outside. And our faith in Christ and, and, uh, and, and salvation that's found in Him, it will never fail us. We will never as a Christian ever come into contact with the judgment or the righteous wrath of God. And we notice in the passage that it was Noah who shut, uh, God rather, who shut Noah in. Noah did not shut himself in. And God makes a point to tell us that, that God shut Noah into that ark. And, and, uh, and he's speaking of the fact that, of how sure Noah's salvation was going to be in that ark and, and how sure our salvation is. Our salvation is as sure as God himself. Jesus declared in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Our salvation is as sure and as secure as God himself. Number eight, even as the ark provided Noah with uh, a place of rest, Jesus provides us with a salvation we can rest in. Again, a passage that I read the early part of the verse. I'll read the entire verse to you now. Jesus' invitation to mankind, come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a salvation that you can rest in because the salvation is offered to us as a gift. There's no works that added to it. If, if our salvation depended on one thing from us, there would be no rest in that salvation. There would be no peace in that salvation. Salvation. The reason the salvation is one that is one we can rest in is because it is wholly loaded toward God, His Word, and His nature. And then finally, ninth, that uh, even as the ark was neglected by the overwhelming majority of people, so too the salvation offer of, uh, by God to man the offer of salvation found in his, his Son, Jesus, is neglected by the overwhelming majority of people as well. Jesus uh, taught in the Sermon on the Mount, this, none of this is of any surprise to God. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, and he's talking to lost. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And the point being, among many points, but the one point being is that no one in this room, or within the sound of my voice, should ever look at Christianity, and in the United States of America, our size, our influence, it's waning, it's growing smaller, the country is post-Christian, and to look at that and say, that is a religion that is, is uh, 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 diminishing. Uh, or because the, the numbers are, are diminishing, that it must reflect badly upon their God or upon the message of, the God, uh, of their God or what they believe in. Nothing of the sort. And there would have been a great tendency and temptation, don't you think, in the time of Noah, for the entire world to look at Noah and his family and say, there are only eight people out there building that ark. There are only eight people taking this God of the Bible seriously. There are only uh, eight people that have entered into that ark. Look how many hundreds of millions and maybe billions of people uh, don't believe in it, don't want anything to do with it, aren't out on the ark. And there is something about this uh, uh, the, uh, comforting one another uh, with, with the majority. And Jesus himself warns, don't do it. And, he, and he's upfront about it. It's always been this way. It has always been the overwhelming majority that has walked away from God and taken the broad path and a comparatively few that has then uh, given their lives to God, taken God seriously in the course of their three score and ten and become saved in the course of their life. And so numbers, there, there's comfort in numbers uh, sometimes, but there's never to be any comfort in numbers related to this. But you can't speak for the world. The world is what it is. All you can do is speak for yourself and make the decision concerning Christ uh, for yourself and to make the right decision. And again, this entire scene of judgment 
associated with Noah's ark is all going to be surpassed one day by a greater judgment in the form of the great tribulation and uh, which will then be surpassed by the greatest judgment of all, the white throne uh, judgment uh, seat of Christ. And the greatest tragedy about uh, Genesis chapter 6 here, of the judgment that's recorded here, uh, in my eyes, was that it's also unnecessary. And I think in the eyes of God as well. This judgment was so needless when God provided an ark he provided a way of escape he provided a salvation from that judgment and how much more needless is eternal judgment when God has provided us with a means of escape from judgment through his son Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he has placed his son between us and judgment. We must walk over him and through his blood in order to one day be damned. How much greater and how much more needless, rather, to end up in eternal judgment in the light of the salvation that he has provided us in the substance of Christ of which the ark was just a type or a picture. And all of it, the salvation received through simple faith in Christ. You know, you take all of the wickedness of the ancient world and in chapter 6, earlier, he layers it on. Very, very evil world in the time of Noah. But if you take all of the wickedness of the entire population of the earth in the time of Noah, and you wrap it all up in one big ball, that sin does not even remotely approach the seriousness of the sin of a single individual rejecting the salvation that God has provided to that person at great expense to himself in his son. Nothing compares to that. And if I don't view it that way at this point in time from the vantage point of the earth, One day from the vantage point of heaven, we will. The single greatest sin that anyone can commit, it is the only sin that can not be forgiven, is a lifelong rejection of God's provision of salvation and a Savior in His Son. And one day... All of this is going to be gone. One day I'll be dead and gone. One day you'll be dead and gone. One day the heavens and the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat and it will all be gone. And the things that I have spoken about here uh, today, for those that look at it and say it's a sermon, this is what people like him get uh, paid to do. You couldn't pay me to be a pastor. You couldn't pay me all the money in the world to be a pastor. And the, the responsibility uh, of, of that, 
and representing God and teaching His Word. But one day, all of it's going to pass. But what has been spoken here today is the truth about you, and it is the truth about your salvation. And I am on personally on the right side of all of this. But I, like God, want everybody to be on the right side of this. And if you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, there will be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after our service, and they would love to pray with you to make Jesus both your Lord and your Savior today and enter into the ark that He is for, uh, and the protection that He is for, from unspeakable judgments that are yet to come. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray and we pray that you would protect us from the thing that we are so prone to do over the long haul of life and even the Christian life. And that is to look at your Bible as a a father, a source for morals and life lessons, or as a book to supply fodder for sermons rather than what it is and that is your heart and your mind and your truth and your warnings and your encouragements being expressed from your throne through it to us and to this world individual into individual hearts Lord and I pray and we pray for every person that stands here every person that is within Uh, the voice of this service here today, that not one person would walk away out into the mass that is uh, so much of the world like the times of Noah, to forget all of this, Lord, and to fail, to come to know you and to come into your salvation in the light of the judgments that are to come and the judgments that you must bring upon our sin. We pray for a great work of your Holy Spirit in each person today and making them aware of their need to be saved and of your provision, Lord, for their salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.